presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Across Idaho, families are trying to enjoy summer vacation with a wary eye toward August and how COVID-19 might affect the coming fall semester. Today, we discuss the uncertainty facing educators and students and how much we still don't know about that second wave. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, we talked to Professor McKay Cunningham of Concordia University School of Law about how a recent Supreme Court decision could affect the Add the Words efforts in Idaho. Clark Corbin of Idaho Education News tells us what we know about public schools coming back in the fall. Finally, Dr. Ryan Lindsay of Idaho State University gives us his take on the latest coronavirus numbers. But first, starting Monday, Idaho Reports is changing how we're bringing you daily updates. You'll still get the numbers at the same time before and after news hour every weekday, but there'll be graphics only to give you a more complete picture. We're dedicating the start of our weekly Idaho Reports programs moving forward to coronavirus numbers and trends. For more updates and context throughout the week, follow Idaho Reports on Facebook and Twitter. For years, Idaho activists have tried to persuade the Idaho legislature to add protections for gay, lesbian, and transgender people to the Human Rights Act. Earlier this week, the U.S. Supreme Court released a decision that says federal law protects those individuals from job-related discrimination. On Thursday, I spoke to Professor McKay Cunningham of Concordia University School of Law about how that ruling overlaps with Add the Words efforts. Thanks so much for joining us today. Briefly, can you run us through the case? Yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, it's a recent case, as you know, just recently decided in a 6-3 opinion, meaning six justices in the majority, three in the dissent. The United States Supreme Court ruled that uh, with regard to employment under a federal statute, that's Title VII, with regard to employment, it is illegal to discriminate uh, based on uh, gender identity uh, and, and sexual orientation. Uh, and so it was, a, it was a big opinion because it applies nationwide. It applies to employers here in Idaho for so long as those employers have at least 15 employees. And, and so that's an interesting distinction. We're talking about uh, not necessarily a large business, but not some of these tiny family-owned businesses either. Yeah, that's one of the things that has not been discussed largely in the media, that there are a number of businesses that are smaller, that have fewer than 15 employees who will not be affected by this ruling. But generally speaking, uh, it's a big step forward. Uh, and what it what it did was the Supreme Court said, well, look, here's Title VII. Title VII prevents employers from discrimination um, based on things that you would presume, based on race. You can't say, okay, I'm going to fire you because you are a black person based on religion. I, I'm going to fire you because you are a Mormon. Uh, but one of those classes that is laid out in that statute in Title VII is sex. And typically that meant gender. I can't fire you just because you are a woman. Uh, but the court said, Justice uh, Gorsuch writing for the majority, 
uh, said that uh, sex uh, can mean, it can also include discrimination based on gender identity and discrimination based on sexual orientation. And to be clear, and this... that's the that's the big that's the big impact of this opinion. And to be clear, this doesn't stop an employer from doing that. It just means that there is a court opinion. There, there's now precedent in the court saying that that is unconstitutional. It's it's not a constitutional ruling. It's a statutory ruling. Uh, it's a it's a federal statute, and it does. Yeah, no, it, it means that if an employer here in Idaho that has more than 15 employees fires someone just because they are gay. Then, then they can be sued. That employer can be sued under this federal statute. And how is this different than Idaho's Add the Words efforts? Oh, that's a great question. Um, this is a big step forward for advocates of Add the Words, um, but it also is incomplete. Uh, they still have a lot of work to do because it only uh, applies to employment. It doesn't apply to public accommodations. It doesn't apply to housing. So in most of this state, if someone wants to rent uh, an apartment or buy a house, uh, it is perfectly legal for the landowner or the owner of that property to say, no, I'm not going to rent this apartment to you, or I'm going to kick you out uh, by virtue of the fact that you are transgender or by virtue of the fact that you are a homosexual. Now, if somebody were to sue over that, would, the, would this week's ruling maybe affect the outcome of that, or is there just no legal standing at all if somebody were to be denied housing? Well, of course, um, there are some 13 cities and a number of counties in Idaho that have through local legislation banned discrimination based on sexual orientation, gender identity with regard to housing. But there's still, I don't know, 60% of the population is still vulnerable to discrimination based in, in these ways. So all that to say, if a person is within a, a place in Idaho that is not protected by a local city ordinance, like we are here in Boise or in Napa or in Meridian, but if you're in a different place, uh, then that's perfectly fine. And, and the employer or the landlord uh, cannot be held accountable under the law because the federal law that we're talking about from this United States Supreme Court case doesn't apply uh, outside of employment. And we do not have a state law here in Idaho that covers gender identity and sexual orientation. And, and all that to say that add the words advocates still have a lot of work to do. Now, and that, that includes places, um, Melissa, like, um, uh, like public accommodations. That's big. That's hotels, it's coffee shops, it's restaurants, it's convenience stores. Any place in which the public is invited uh, here in Idaho, if you don't fall within one of those city ordinances, there are no protections for uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. How about education? Uh, education is, uh, is uh, another interesting question. That uh, would deal a lot, I think, with other federal statutes. Uh, Title IX is a federal statute that suggests if uh, an educational facility receives federal funds, then they cannot discriminate based on certain uh, factors like race and, and, and uh, religion. But that term sex is there too. And I'm glad that you asked that because um, it kind of brings into question the Fairness in Women's Sports Act here in Idaho. It's one of two very recent statutes passed into law or at least signed by uh, Governor Little in 2020. 
And at least one part of that statute suggests that uh, transgender girls cannot compete uh, in sporting events in high school and in college. Um, and it implicates Title IX. So to back it up a little bit, um, the, uh, the opinion that we are talking about, the Bostock opinion, does not directly control. Right? The Bostock opinion really is limited to employment. But there's a really, really strong argument that Idaho's Fairness and Women's Sports Act is invalid, is illegal because of this logic. And let me, let me lay it out for you. Um, under, uh, under Title VII in the employment, it has, those, it, it has protections with regard to certain groups, race, religion, and sex. And the Supreme Court in Bostock said sex includes general, uh, gender identity and sexual orientation. It very similarly, Title IX protects against uh, discrimination based on sex. And so if sex means gender identity and sexual orientation under Title VII, it should certainly mean the same thing under Title IX. So all of that to say, it would be very weird and very odd and very inconsistent for a court to suggest that under Title IX, the term sex does not include protections for gender identity and sexual orientation because it's that same term that the court just um, just characterized in, uh, in the Bostock opinion. Now, that was just one piece of legislation that came out this past session that dealt with transgender individuals. The other one, dealing with, with uh, gender markers on birth certificates, doesn't fall under education or Title IX. Uh, and, and that, of course, is whether or not individuals can change their gender markers on their birth certificates. Is that potentially affected by this decision? Uh, no, uh, not, not nearly as clearly. Uh, just because, as you note, what we're discussing with regard to changing the gender marker on a birth certificate falls outside of the ambit or of the scope of Title VII and or Title IX. This is just an Idaho statute that disallows people from changing their gender marker on their, on their birth certificate. So if it is going to be invalidated, and I think that there is, quite frankly, a very good chance that it will be invalidated, it's not going to be under the authority uh, of the recent Supreme Court decision that we are talking about. All right, Professor Cunningham, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. We're a few weeks into summer vacation, but families across Idaho are already preparing for what the fall semester might bring for their students. On Thursday, I spoke to Clark Corbin of Idaho Education News about the uncertainty educators and families are facing when it comes to back to school plans in the time of COVID-19, when we might expect answers and where those answers might be coming from. Thanks so much for joining us today, Clark. Can you give us an update on where we are when it comes to fall 2020 in public schools? Yeah, the big news from this week, a story that I reported Wednesday at Idaho Education News was the State Board of Education in a departure from the spring is gonna leave the decisions about reopening uh, for in the fall up to our local school districts, up to the trustees. I spoke with State Board of Education President Debbie Critchfield for about an hour on Wednesday, and she walked me through um, basically saying she's putting her trust in the local school boards, that the word trustee is never meant more than it mean, means right now, and that they're in the best position uh, to make determinations for their local communities. They're elected by local patrons. Um, they have the pulse of the community. They're hearing from parents, and, and it kind of goes along with 
a little bit about what we heard over the last year about local control and local decision making. And so uh, that's the big news that's this week. That's obviously a total change from the spring uh, where the state board issued soft closures initially in March and then adopted Governor Brad Little's Idaho rebounds plan with its group size limitations that effectively kept almost all public schools and public charters um, physically closed and they were focusing on remote learning and distance learning this spring. There were some issues there, uh, but as of right now, uh, the decision is gonna be completely up to local school districts. And as we've seen, some of them are going ahead with that. What's interesting to me when I read your story is th there are no checklists. There's no requirement that the school districts coordinate with the public health district. Uh, it's entirely up to them. Does that absolve the state in, in some way of any responsibility if something does, uh, heaven forbid, go wrong this fall? That's an open question, and that's something right now uh, that state officials and the state board are going to get into. Also on Wednesday, Governor Little announced the creation of these two new committees that are going to be looking at reopening in the fall and talking with his office and talking with Debbie Critchfield from the state board. The liability issue is something that's on superintendents minds right now. Uh, the committee is going to look at that. We did a story last week where Homedale superintendent Rob Sauer had expressed some concerns about the liability after several insurance carriers told school districts that if someone contracted COVID-19 at a school, got sick and then sued, the insurance carriers likely would not cover that. And so that is actually one of the big issues statewide that we're looking at right now. And Governor Little announced these new committees this week. Those committees will issue informational guidance. Like I said, it's up to the local school boards to come up with their plans. But one thing they are gonna get into is the liability question. Um, whether they ask for an executive order uh, from Governor Little or something different uh, remains to be seen, but that is something that's on the long list of issues facing school administrators and parents right now as we come to grips with a return for the fall. And let's talk a little bit about these two committees. What exactly are they doing as far as, as the guidance that they're issuing? They're gonna get to work uh, starting next Monday, so it's gonna be pretty quick. And they've sort of set a goal where they would like to issue some guidance by June 30th. Uh, so that's just over a week, really. Uh, we're already near the end of June. There's two committees. One's going to be looking at the overall question of reopening in the fall. That's headed up by Debbie Critchfield from the state board. It's got legislators on it. It's got folks from the governor's office. It has a whole lot of school officials on it, and it has a representative from Central District Health. And so they're gonna look at maybe sharing some best practices because there's a lot of different questions. What do you do with busing? What do you do with drinking fountains? What do you do with uh, lockers, backpacks, the passing period between hallways? And so when I talked with Debbie, they're not gonna issue some 100 page plan with detailed schematics about each desk needs to be positioned here, here, and here. It's, it's more about sharing best practices and some guidance but it'll be informational and only. The second committee will be headed up by Kurt Liebig from the State Board of Education. That's gonna look at, we're calling it the di digital divide, but it's some of those struggles that schools and parents experienced in the spring with the move to remote learning. And so that could be everything from students who have a device, to don't, don't have a device, pardon me, students who do not have a device, to students who don't have connectivity, um, those are a lot of questions that we've run into in the spring. As we know, 
depending on where your family lived, the experience varied widely from everything from a full slate of online learning uh, to packets and worksheets that were sent home and then really everything in between. And so that second committee is gonna be looking at connectivity and devices and internet and hotspots. And it's a fairly complicated issue. Um, we have constitutional requirements for free, equitable, uh, thorough system of public education. And, and it's an open question right now. How do you meet those requirements if you have students that don't have devices, don't have internet? Quite frankly, we have students who are homeless. Um, and it's a challenge to reach everybody uh, and to prevent uh, these education gaps that we see from widening. That's a real challenge. And the creation of that committee on distance learning to me is is a pretty good indication that at least some of these school districts in the fall are going to be relying on that again, maybe with a blend of of learning in person. Um, but but that to me seems like some parents should be starting to get prepared for that uh, possibility. Yeah, you, I, I think that's a really good observation, Melissa, and that's something that we've been talking about for the last several weeks. What you see publicly is everybody from Governor Brad Little uh, to parents in Boise and West Ada saying they want a traditional return to school in the fall to physically go to school. Um, we hear that all over the state. We heard that in Eastern Idaho. But what I've seen take place over the past month is state officials gear up for the possibility of blended learning. And if that's a new term for some folks, what that likely means is a combination of in-person classroom learning coupled with online, remote, or distance learning. Um, I've heard Superintendent of Public Instruction, Sherry Ibarra, talk about this. I've heard about the State Board talk about this. Obviously, as you pointed out, one of these two new committees is looking entirely at connectivity and the digital divide. And so I think that most everybody is hoping for a traditional return, but planning and investing and developing a strategy should it need to go online uh, and our colleges and universities are also looking at partially going online. And so that's very much in the mix, very much in the plans. And I think parents would um, would be well served to realize that that may be, depending on where their child lives, that may be a part of the education going forward. I imagine one part of the equation too is social distancing. When we're talking about some schools and classrooms that are already overcrowded, and I've seen suggestions about learning in shifts, you know, either a morning afternoon schedule or Monday and Wednesday versus Tuesday and Thursday. What sort of things are you hearing? Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing the same kind of things. And again, it will depend on the district where your family lives. And some of the large growing districts, I'm thinking about West Ada, I'm thinking about Twin Falls, I'm thinking about Bonneville in Eastern Idaho. Some of those districts have had capacity issues in the past. And speaking only about West Ada, the state's largest district, um, I spoke with their spokesperson, Eric Exline, a couple of weeks ago and talked about the challenges of what a return to school in the fall could look like. And nothing is official, nothing is decided in West Ada, but they're wondering about if social distancing restrictions are in place, how does that work in the fall? How do you have 30, 32 kids and a teacher and some aides in a traditional classroom and one of the things they may look at is having students go every other day go in smaller groups go in shifts because if social distancing is a reality particularly in those large districts that have crowding issues 
it really may be more of a blended model. I don't want to say anything's official. We still have a ways to go, but it's something that's on the table. It's something that they're looking at. If we can't have 30 kids and some aides and a teacher in the classroom, maybe they could go on smaller shifts. Maybe they could go every other day. Maybe it could be a kindergarten type model where you go in the morning for in-person instruction and then don't go in the afternoon. And it's likely to look different from district to district is the sense that I'm getting. We don't know all the answers yet, but that is something districts are looking at and grappling with right now as we speak. All right, Clark Corbin, Idaho Education News. Thank you so much for your time. And of course, those school districts' plans depend on new case numbers and whether or not we'll see a big surge in the fall. Dr. Ryan Lindsay, Public and Community Health Department Chair at Idaho State University, joined me Friday morning to discuss how much we know about recent increases in cases. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Lindsay. I, I'm curious, when we're looking at Idaho's cases, are we still on the first wave or are we on to the second wave? Um, like anything, that, that answer is um, hard, hard to answer because it's not totally clear-cut nationally. It doesn't seem like we ever went um, fully on a decrease from the first wave. So uh, it looks like we're still in a first wave and we are on an uptick. Um, nationally and in Idaho, we, we did uh, have a sharp increase through late March and, and early April that, that came way down because of our mitigation strategies. And, and we are seeing an uptake. So I think you could argue that, that it is a second wave, but I think the idea of a second wave is, is often tied to the, um, the idea of a seasonal impact from, for example, influenza, where we, the Spanish flu of 1918, we saw this fall wave that came roaring back that was um, more deadly. I don't, I don't think we're there yet in, I don't think we have the data that this coronavirus has mutated to be more deadly at this point. Um, so I don't know that I would call it a second wave. We're definitely seeing a, a sharp increase in cases, a slope of which we haven't seen since mid-April. You know, I'm curious about that sharp increase because so many of them in recent weeks have been tied to specific clusters. And I'm thinking food processing facilities in Magic Valley or bar hopping in downtown Boise. So should the general public be concerned considering so many of these cases are tied to specific um, situations or events? Yeah, I, I think um, I think there. whenever you have cases going up in a community, there, there should be concern because... Um, I mean, on the one hand, folks will say, well, well we're testing more, so you're going to find more cases. But, uh, and, we, and our test positive rate is still um, going down, and I know it's still, uh, that's a positive thing. But once you have this increase in cases, these cases don't happen in isolation. The people that are in a, working in a, a food processing plant or, or bar hopping, um, you know, they, they, those are, those folks, may be young and healthy and be getting uh, cases early on, but they're tied to families and communities always. And so you would um, you'd be worried about that transmission going uh, to older, more vulnerable groups um, and that hospital cases would follow. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk to you about that demographic, those those people 20 to 30 who are making up so many of the new cases, especially in Ada County. Um, is, is there any information or proven strategies to get across to young people the dangers of this, not necessarily to them, but the community as a whole? Yeah, I think that um, 
Idaho is not the only state grappling with this. I mean, we're seeing this in other states that younger folks um, are, are testing positive at, at much higher rates, but yet have much less severe disease. And um, I, I think that uh, seeing or hearing stories from, from younger folks that have had COVID and to hear that it's, it's not benign, um, have, that there is a lot of um, pain and suffering with, that comes with this disease, that, that uh, I think those, those voices could be powerful among peer groups. I don't know. Um, I think everyone's kind of grappling with how, how do you best uh, get that message out. But I think, I think that all across the age groups, people can model good behavior. And I think that um, people in the 20 to 39 age group or so, uh, the, the, they're, they're, they tend to be um, a little bit more focused on, on uh, the idea of a common good. And I think that might have traction here that, that continuing to say, this is not just impacting you, but your families and the broader community may work. I'm hearing more talk uh, from policymakers about the idea of regional management as opposed to a statewide blanket edict, right? Shutting down every everything uniformly. Um, and, and I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Is that something that is effective when people can still move around freely from place to place? I think it's... Uh it's, it's always a, a tricky thing. We, we do need more local control, more local ability to um, say, s slow down our progression through the stages. Uh, I think if we would have looked at public health districts, for example, in moving through the stages, some wouldn't have moved to stage four uh, based on that. And, and so, and we have such a, uh, a large state that with, with different um, communities tied to different state uh, cities outside of our state and and just different challenges for Idaho at the same time there's 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 something about going through it all together as as Idahoans through that, that I think is important too so I think there is a, a balance you have to try to find between um, having great state leadership and, and um, guidance and yet having some still some control at the at the more local level we know some of our communities uh, have been making decisions that impact the the uh, city right next door, and that there needs to be coordination in those um, situations. Yeah, I'm. I'm curious. As the last time we talked, there wasn't quite as much data available publicly from the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare. And you know, two months later, we're seeing more and more specific demographic information and and um, regional information. But as you look at that data, what more information do you wish you had? I I think that. Um, First of all, I, th I, I commend the health districts that are all tr trying to do the best they can to increase the amount of data that they can um, gather for their own internal decision making and to put forward to the public through their dashboards. And I've seen an improvement in, in sort of race, ethnicity, demographics, more a lot more information on a lot of our public health districts' websites. Um, th there are still things that that I wish. I, I think that, as you mentioned, occupational hazards could could play into this. It'd be nice to have broad occupational um, risks associated with COVID. I would love to see that. I also, um, a lot of the dashboards, I think, are a little bit unclear when they show um, the number of cases by date of illness onset. Um, there's a, always about a two-week lag in that data. And so I think sometimes it can give a false 
impression that uh, this week's always better than the week prior, um, but the data is really just rolling in and hasn't been updated yet. And so some way of showing that more clearly, I think would be uh, helpful to the public. All right, Dr. Lindsay, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for watching. Just a reminder for more updates throughout the week, make sure you're following Idaho Reports on Facebook and Twitter. We'll see you back here next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.